Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you in the room today, and for that matter, those of you who are watching online, and we're grateful to have you tuned in as well. By the way, people from literally all over the globe are joining us today. In fact, why don't we, why don't we welcome them? Would you do that? Would you welcome them into our worship time? I want to ask you a question, okay? Those watching, those sitting in this room, how many of you like to be criticized? Nobody. All right, let me ask you another way. How many of you have ever been criticized? Yeah, it looks like about 100%. The fact is, you're going to be criticized in life, aren't you? And uh, I want to talk with you about that. We're talking about uh, a victorious Christian life, and I want to talk with you. If you're going to be a victorious Christian, you're going to have to know how to victoriously deal with criticism because criticism is a part of a life. It's part of a broken world. And how is the believer, how do we walk in victory in this area? Now, let me begin by telling you what I'm not going to talk about. I'm not saying that there's never a uh, legitimate time to... Uh, um, to examine things or that there's never legitimate criticism. Our nation today is in trouble because of a lack of critical thinking. Uh, our cultural agenda in the last decade has done its best to try and, and destroy honest, critical, uh, 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 sincere examination of what's right, and we've exchanged it for this kind of progressive Kool-Aid that's going on in the world. But everyone today is terrified of criticizing uh, anything that is connected to the cultural agenda and cultural behavior. Now, I'm not going to be, that's not what I mean when I talk about criticism, that there isn't any legal, in fact, I'll talk a little bit about that. But l listen to this, after I had finished working on my message this week, I came across this article, and the headline is this, County Bans Criticism. And it is a rule that was, was passed by a county commission in Richmond County, North Carolina, just recently in which the officials in this county of North Carolina have decided to ban criticism of them. So if you go to their meeting, their county commission meeting, you can't criticize them uh, or you can't disagree with them or anything the chairman deems to be uh, that he doesn't like, he can just have you escorted out and there can be criminal penalty attached to it. They voted this themselves that you can't criticize them. And by the way, you can imagine there's a lawsuit criticizing their ban on criticism. And uh, you could predict that. Well, I'm not saying there's never a legitimate criticism. Wouldn't it be great if we could say, wait a minute, you can never criticize. You can't criticize me. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? But the fact is, we're going to be criticized. But there is some legitimate kind of criticism. And by the way, there is some legitimate kind of criticism that is needed in our lives and in our culture. So, but... I'm not saying there's never... The other thing that I'm not going to be talking about or, or saying is that there's no such thing uh, as spiritual discernment. I'm not going to... I, there is spiritual discernment. And we need spiritual discernment. And spiritual discernment is a, a kind of form of critical thinking for the Christian. And so we need it. We need it for our own lives. We need it uh, to be corporately expressed and personally experienced. But it must be done biblically and appropriately and in love and not vengefully. And so I'm not saying there's, never such, there's no such thing as spirit. There is. But it has to be done the right way. So those are some things. You know, today we live in an age where you have to tell people what you're not saying before you tell them what you are saying. Right? If you don't, you'll get criticized. Okay, so much for that. So with that in mind. How do you have victory over criticism? Now, one of the historical figures that I've loved all my life is a guy named Winston Churchill, considered by many the greatest leader of the UK or Britain ever. Led them through their dark, what they consider their darkest hour, World War II. And, uh, but Winston Churchill, the prime minister of Great Britain, was, was frequently criticized. I mean, uh, harshly criticized uh, through his time a couple of times as the prime minister uh, of England. And there was this one occasion Barbara Hatcher refers to in her book, uh, Vital Speeches, where Churchill has, 
um, is attending in his last year in office this official kind of ceremony that he's at. And several rows behind him, now he's the prime minister, last year of his uh, uh, service as prime minister, a couple rows behind him, uh, he hears in a whispering tone, that's Winston Churchill. And then he hears them say, they say he's getting senile. Uh, the other says, well, they say he should step aside and leave the running of the nation to a more dynamic and capable uh, leader. When the ceremony was over, <laughs> Churchill turned around to those two men, and this is what he said. And by the way, gentlemen, they also say he's deaf. <laughs> the fact is, all of us are going to be criticized, right, throughout life. We're going to be criticized. Albert Hubbard said, to avoid criticism, do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. I think he's right. If you don't want to be criticized, if you want to avoid criticism, just don't live. But then that's not realistic, is it? So the real question is, how do you have victory over criticism? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because if you're going to be a victorious Christian, which is the theme of this series win, you're going to, you're going to have to to face and overcome criticism. If you're physically able to do so, stand with me as we read our text this morning. Just two verses from 3 John, verses 9 and 10 is what we want to look at. Are you ready? <clears throat> John writes and says, I have, something to, uh, uh, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Now, time out. Y'all look this way. Uh, John has written this message to the church to deal with some things Diotrephes is a man in the church, and he's not a good guy. He's a religious guy, but he's lost. That's how I would describe him. And so John says, I've written something for the church, but Diotrephes, who wants to put himself above all authority, will not let you have it. He's not letting it get through, okay? Verse 10. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Look at this. Talking wicked nonsense against us. And... Not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Lord, would you speak to us this morning for these few minutes? Would you, uh, uh, Father, challenge our hearts? Uh, Father, would you uh, convict us? And Lord, most of all, would you change us because of your word and what it speaks to our life? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you can be seated. Now, uh, these two verses, as I say, John is addressing some kind of problem. Part of that problem is this man named Diotrephes, who is making a mess in the church. He is a religious guy. Uh, I say he's lost as a goose in tall grass. He's, and, and he's just creating all kind of problems. And those problems are dividing the congregation. He's throwing some people out of the church. Uh, he's refusing to let other people into the church. Um, and so John said, and he's, most of all, he, how he's doing is, is through uh, wicked kind of uh, criticisms of people. And uh, John calls it exactly that. And so here's what I want to do with you this morning as we think about how do you have victory over Christ. I want us to learn three things from the text. I'm going to give you three things from the text, okay, that we see from this dynamic that's going on with diatrophies. The second thing I want to do, and we'll, this will be the rest of the message, is I want to give you five biblical responses to criticism. So how do you handle criticism when you are criticized, okay? That's where we're going to go uh, with this. There's an authority issue in the church here, and uh, it is literally tearing the church apart. And diatrophies, if you notice, is talking wickedness, uh, John writes. And that wickedness is first directed toward a guy named Gaius. Uh, Gaius is a leader in the church, a good guy. And so uh, because Diotrephes wants to be kind of the preeminent leader in the church, he's trying to take that guy down with uh, gossip and with criticism and innuendo and intimidation. And so John knows what he's doing. He says, look, he won't even let us get get a message to you properly because he is trying to control everything. So he says, if I come, I'm going to deal with it face to face. So what, what is really going on? With that in mind, the passage gives us three things, three insights. Number one, <clears throat> malicious criticism is demonic. 
It's the first thing I want you to see from the passage. Now, notice I didn't say criticism. I said malicious criticism. It's very important that you understand that word. John calls it wicked nonsense. But it's malicious. It's designed to create problems. Now, not all criticism is from hell. Not all criticism is demonic. I'll address that a little bit later on. But in this case, what is going on was malicious and it was evil. And thus, it can only be sourced back to hell. It's demonic. And much of the criticism that you and I deal with in life is designed like this. It's designed to try and destroy us or it's designed to try and, and, and hurt us. Have you ever received an anonymous letter? Have any of you ever received an anonymous letter that had some hurtful stuff in it or some, uh, some misrepresentation? Listen, if you do, anytime you receive something like that, let me tell you what to do with it. Throw it away. Because an anonymous letter is not written to help you. It is written specifically to hurt and to create pain in your life. Never give it any credibility. I heard one man say that he received a letter that had no content in it, just the word fool. He said it was the first time that he had ever received a letter that didn't have any content and was, and was signed by the writer. You see, you can't stop evil criticism. It is sourced out of hell, and you're going to experience that at times in your life. And it's not designed to help. It's just designed to hurt you, to inflict pain in your life. Now, all of us have probably experienced that, but you have to begin first by understanding where did this come from? Where is the source? It may be somebody you know that delivers the message, but that's what they are. They are a messenger uh, from hell, really. And they may, you may say, well, they're not... If the devil uses them to bring malicious criticism, guess what? They're a messenger uh, and an agent of hell, whether they realize it or not. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so you can't stop evil criticism, but what you can do is you can recognize the source. And that's what John does right here. He's saying, look, this is, this is wicked nonsense. So he's trying to help them to understand, don't get caught up in this uh, criticism. The second thing that I want you to see is that malicious criticism is divisive. It's divisive. Keep your Bibles open. Look at verse 10. He says, and listen, Diotrephes is not content with just the uh, attack on Gaius. He refuses to welcome the brothers. This attack extended beyond just this one individual. He was trying to divide, probably trying to get people to be on his side, and he knew there was another side, and he's trying to create division. Um, <clears throat> And he wanted it to spread within the church among the believers. Now, listen, malicious criticism will often lead to polarization and division. Who's with me? Who's with them? That sort of thing. And eventually, it will lead to ungodly behavior. And that's what was happening here to the church in Asia Minor because Diotrephes was creating division. Uh, the behavior became ungodly. He calls it out for what it is. You see, the devil loves to create division within and among believers. Now, why does he do that? Well, Paul tells us why in Galatians 5, 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Makes sense, doesn't it? So the devil see, wants to get, he wants to create division. Now, he creates all kind of division. He'll create division in your heart. You know, that's why the Bible says no man can serve two masters, right? That's the devil tries to create division, trying to get us to serve two masters. Uh, he'll create division among you and friends. He'll create division among you and uh, your colleagues. He'll create division among you and brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? It's all to destroy you. And in the church, it is always designed to destroy the work of God. Uh, he wants to divide. It's one of his incredibly powerful weapons that he uses in our life. Because when the family of God is divided, the work of God suffers. Makes sense, doesn't it? So the devil doesn't want a unified family. In this case, he's using criticism to divide the church of God. Criticism to divine brother against brother. Friends probably were having to choose whose side. Are you on Gaius' side or Diotrephes' side? And he was using these malicious, this malicious uh, criticism to create this polarization among people. Remember that, that the devil, remember the source of malicious criticism. It's demonic. Remember that malicious criticism then is divisive. And then the third thing that I want you to see from this passage is 
That malicious criticism is destructive. Again, verse 10 points out that this stuff began to uh, escalate to the point that people were being thrown out of the church. And it all started with this wicked nonsense that Diotrephes was engaged in, this intimidation and criticism and hurt feelings were the result. And, and people finally were, were, were being thrown out of the church. Now, you can't worship here because you don't agree or you, don't, you differ, that sort of thing. And so he says he puts them out of the church. Again, I trust that you notice the word malicious, right? Criticism that is intended to create harm instead of harmony. And the devil will do his best to create this kind of split or division in your life, whether it's with family or friends, uh, colleagues, uh, even in the congregation. It, it's why, by the way, Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Do you know why he said that? Listen to this. Remember, what is the, y'all tell me, what is the source of malicious, malicious criticism? What, what is it? Satan. Hell. The demonic, that's the source, right? <clears throat> Some spiritual religious people, not spiritual, religious people came to Jesus, tried to trick him, and they said this to him. He said, uh, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus was doing, he cast out some demons. And he said, you're of your father, the devil. You're, you're from Beelzebub. And Jesus says, I can't be. How can the devil cast the devil out? He said, a house divided against itself can't stand. He said, if I'm from the devil, why would I be casting the devil out of people? Jesus understood how, how powerful division is. And, and, so, and the devil knows that. And by the way, don't you figure that statement Jesus made when he said a house divided against itself can't stand? Don't you figure the devil knows that verse pretty well? And so he uses this tool, this weapon uh, against us. So how should the victorious Christian respond to criticism? <clears throat> and that's what I want to do in the rest of my message. I want to give you five biblical responses. These aren't, hey, here's a good idea, do this. or here's, these, these things are, are scripturally based. How do you, so if you're going to be a victorious Christian, how do you respond to criticism? Uh, being criticized, not the, uh, criticized isn't the problem if you, if you know how to respond to it. Um, Winston Churchill, again, one of my favorites, as I said, he kept framed uh, on his wall near his desk a statement that Abraham Lincoln had made when Abraham Lincoln was the president. This is the quote that he kept framed. I do the very best I can, and I mean to keep going. If the end brings me out all right, then what, what is said about me or against me won't matter. But if I'm wrong, ten angels swearing that I was right won't make it right or make a difference. So, so how do we respond properly? Number one, we first respond with contemplation. Uh, Proverbs 15.31 says this, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. The first thing we do is we respond with contemplation. The Bible teaches us that not all criticism is bad or malicious, and that's why we have to contemplate the intention and the source. That's how we begin. Now, when we're criticized, we ought to ask ourselves whether the criticism contains any truth. Okay, that can be hard to do sometimes, especially if it comes from someone or a source that we don't particularly like. But if we're wise, we will at least ask ourselves, regardless of the motivation of the critic, is there any truth there? That's, we contemplate it. Before we respond with anything, we contemplate, okay, is there, truth? Is there even a morsel of truth in here? And there was an article on that subject that I read while I was preparing this, and that suggests four things that we do. Write these down. Number one is you contemplate, commit the matter instantly to God. So you get this criticism. The first thing you do is you commit the matter to God. And you ask God to rem uh, remove all the resentment or the counter-criticism that's in your heart or on your part and teach you any needed lessons. Does that make sense? So you commit the matter instantly to God and uh, ask Him to remove all the resentments. I want you to go turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. I want to show you something. 2 Samuel 16. We'll give you a second to turn over there. Second, I will just read a few verses to you here in just a moment. 
uh, about committing the matter to, to God. Um, some of you, uh, any of you ever watched Andy Griffith? Any of you ever? It's one of my favorite shows. There's a character in there named Ernest T. Bass. Anybody know who Ernest T. Bass is? Right. Ernest T. Bass likes to throw rocks through windows. That's how he shows up. It's me, it's me, it's Ernest T. Smash. And rock through a window. You want to know where the character for Ernest T. was based out of? Right here in this passage. 2 Samuel 16. Well, I, I'm teasing about that. I don't know if this is really. This was the first Ernest T. Bass. And here's what's going on. Let me give you the setting. Here's what's going on. David is the king, and he has a son named Absalom. Absalom is a wicked son, and he's turned on his dad, and he's trying to track his dad down and kill him. David's the king, but he's fleeing for his life because Absalom's put together a coup that's trying to overthrow him and kill his dad. And so he's running. David is running for his life even though he's the king. And he encounters a guy named Shimei. Shimei is a descendant of Saul, the king before David. And he is hacked off because his life is miserable because when David became the king and Saul, because of his own failures, God punished his, his uh, family, descendants. And so this guy, Shimei, is a descendant. And he is, he's hacked off at David because he's really blaming David for the downfall of King Saul. And so the Bible says what he does is he starts, this one guy, Shimei, starts harassing David and he starts throwing dust at him and rocks at him and cursing him. And, uh, I mean, he's, he, he has no real power against David. David has all these mighty men that are with him and they were the top warriors in the land of uh, Israel, they would have been like the rangers or something. You know, they were those, or the seals. These, were, these dudes were bad news, and they were, they were with David. So you got the picture? So Shimei is, he's cursing at David, throwing rocks at him. And, uh, all right, look at verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. This is one of his military guys. Abishai is one of his great military leaders. And he comes to David and he says, why should we allow this God to live, this guy to live? Uh, he's nothing more than a dead dog. Just give me permission. I'm going to go chop his head off. Okay, follow on. But the king said, that's David, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall, I, shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei, look at, here it is, went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. And by the way, criticism will wear you out. But do you have the picture? So David and his men are traveling down the road. And up on this little embankment uh, parallel to them is Shimei, and he's running along, and he's cursing David. And he's throwing rocks at him. And this is the king. And dirt at him and everything. He's just pitching a, tent, a, 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 a temper tantrum. And this is where Ernest T. Bass was created. I fully believe it. But so you get there. And David, what does David do? So his general comes to him and says, you going to put up with this? Just give me the word. I'm going to go chop his head off. Now, I don't know about you, but I may have, after a while, I may have said, this guy's driving me crazy. Go chop his head off. Right? Would you maybe have felt that way, I mean, you think? And so David says something interesting. This shows that David was contemplating what was going on. His son's trying to kill him. Now you have this Benjaminite guy that, that's uh, cursing him out, throwing rocks at him and everything. And David said, no. He said, this may be of God. Wow. God may have told him to curse me. 
And he said, I need to think through this. That's what David's really saying before we take any action. Because if God has told him to curse me, then I, there's something I need to get from this. So just let him be. Let him Because David knew, hey, if I want to deal with him, I can deal with him. I can handle him if I need to. And so what he did is he contemplates and he says, who knows, if I handle this right, this is a loose translation, if I handle this right, who knows but that God may show me goodness and favor because of the way I handle this unfair criticism. Wow. So commit the matter instantly to God. Okay, number two, remember that we're all great sinners and that the one who has criticized us does not begin to know the worst about us. Here's the fact, as George Whitfield, and I'll share a story with you in just a bit, as George Whitfield said, we're a whole lot worse than most people know anyway, right? I mean, you know inside that there are things that nobody knows about you that are a whole lot worse than what people have said about you. Hello? Man, that got quiet. Is it true? I had a letter. I received a letter a bunch of years ago about an event we did here. It was a, a wild game expo exposition. You know, we bring all the men in, and we had hundreds of guys here, and it was a great night. Over 40 men got saved. That's pretty exciting. The next week I received a letter, not from a member, but from somebody in the community, and the letter said this, uh, I've always heretofore thought, uh, Pastor, that you were a godly man, but now I know you're not, because a godly man would not have allowed a wild game exposition. And so now I know that you're not a godly man. And it was, it was one of those jab kind of things. And I'm thinking, 40 men got saved and are going to be in heaven because we, we did this. But she didn't think a church ought to do this. And so she, didn't, she thought, therefore, I, it was a failure in my spiritual leadership and that sort of thing. Now, I'll talk about it in a minute. You don't always respond. But in this case, I thought, man, 40 men got saved. She needs to know what God did. And so I write this letter back. But here's how I end it. I said, I I'm sorry that I have failed you as a spiritual leader. But I said, the fact is, I'm a whole lot worse than you know. God bless you. <laughs> I did. By the way, I got a letter from her, another one back from her. And when I told her 40 men got saved, and this is her response, you Baptist, that's all you ever think about are numbers. 40 men, that's pretty significant. Hello? But see, she missed the whole point. And she said, oh, I didn't do, I thought, I'll tell you, I'm going to go ahead and share a verse with you. I'll share later on. The Bible says, answer not a fool according to their folly. And so I just said, enough. Uh, there's nothing that I will write that will, will convince her of the value of what we did. All right? So, uh, but remember, we're all great sinners. All right? Number three, if you have made a mistake or committed a sin, humbly and frankly confess it to God and others if needed. And others if needed. And by the way, she at least gave me a great sermon illustration, didn't she? Number four, be willing. Do you want me to say that one again? If you have made a mistake or committed sin, humbly and frankly confess it to God. And maybe to others if you need to, if there's some, something you need to do to make it right. Number four, number four, be willing to learn afresh that you're not infallible, that you're going to make mistakes, and that you need God's grace and His wisdom every moment of the day to keep moving in a straight path. Charles Spurgeon, another one of these historical figures that I love, a great preacher, prince of preachers what he was referred to. One day he was walking down the street, and a man saw him. He was well-known, and a man saw him and said, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, he took his top hat off, and he bowed, and he said, A great big humbug. To which Spurgeon turned to him, took his hat off, bowed, and said, Thank you, sir, for the compliment. I'm just glad to know I'm great at anything. Sometimes, you know what we have to understand is that our response, uh, our response has to come with some contemplation. Just think, don't overly overwork it, but just think through before you do something that you're going to regret. Number two, respond with love. Respond with love. Uh, Proverbs 15.1, I think I've listed that on your outline. 
A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, this isn't easy to do, is it? I mean, to, to always respond in love, because our natures don't receive criticism very well, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I've never met anybody who said, oh, I got criticized. Man, that's great. I love, guys, some, I'd love some more criticism, right? No, no, we don't, we don't respond very well to criticism. So when we say respond with love, that's a hard thing to do because our natural response is defensive. Agreed? Now, responding in love, let me just put this little caveat in here, does not mean that, that you accept every criticism. Well, I'm just going to respond in love, so every criticism is accepted. Nor does it mean that you affirm the critic. Okay, I'm going to respond in love. You criticize me. I, I love you anyway, brother or sister. I love you in the Lord, and it's okay. Responding in love does not mean that you, you just have to accept the critic as right or the criticism as fair. But, and Jesus is our model for this. You know where he modeled this more than any other place? On the cross. You remember, you know what the Bible says they were doing to Jesus while he was on the cross? They were mocking him. They were spitting on him. And they were cursing him. And you know what Jesus, Jesus what did Jesus say, class? Y'all know. Father, forgive them. Why? Because they're a bunch of morons. That's not what he said. That's what you and I might have said on our best day. Father, forgive them. They're idiots. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you know what? That is an expression of his incredible love. That is a response of love. But he did not affirm the mocking. He didn't say, I received that from you guys. I deserve that. That's fair. Uh, uh, he didn't do it. Look. Isn't Jesus incredible? Isn't he incredible? If I'm up there and I have the power Jesus does, I'm saying, I've had enough of you people. I've had enough of you people. All of this is unfair. I'm not taking it anymore. I'm coming down and you are going to regret it. He could have, you know. He could have. But his response was love. Father, you forgive them. I love them. I will die for them, even though they don't get it. He, he didn't affirm it. Do you, you, are y'all with me? Do you understand? So you don't have to, responding in love doesn't mean you say, I deserve that. I affirm that. I receive that. Or you're, you're great. You're great. That's not what we're, responding in love means that I know how to handle myself. All right? Number three, how do you respond? You respond in love. Number three, do not respond in anger. Proverbs 29, 11 says, A fool gives vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. You know, an angry response sometimes to the critic is really, is, is really the result of not liking the fact that someone has called us out, Right? Sometimes an angry response is just, I don't like them. And it may be valid on one sense because it's, we, we may look at them and say, who are you to call me out? You're talking about this issue with me, but you've got a beam in your own eye. Remember what Jesus said? Who are you to, to point out the, the speck in somebody else's eye when you've got a beam in your eye? And sometimes that's how we feel if we've been criticized. And so consequently, we think, okay, touche. You're talking to me about this. I'm going to talk to you. Be careful about responding in anger. And I, I have to tell you something. I am a professional at what I'm talking about here today. Because I have blown it so many times. I think I've got mileage now, and I'm better at how I respond to those things. But I can remember times. I've had to go back and apologize so many times over my ministry because I got angry, and I responded in anger instead of responding in love. Have you? And so we have to be careful because that, our, our instinct is to, I'm gonna, you're not going to get by with that. You're not going to say that and get by with that. You're not going to say that or do that and, it not, uh, and not get some kind of uh, a strong response back from me. A lot of times it is more about touche. If you're going to say that, then I'm going to say this about you. When British, for, uh, British and French um, 
were fighting in the 1750s in Canada out near Quebec. Admiral Phipps, the commander of the British fleet, was told to anchor just outside of Quebec. And he was given orders to keep his armada there and wait for the British land forces to arrive. And then when they arrived to attack the city, then the, the naval forces would engage their guns uh, as back support. Well, Phipps's Navy arrived early. They arrived so early that, that it seemed like the British ground troops weren't coming. They waited, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And this Admiral, Admiral Phipps, gets annoyed. He gets annoyed that they're having to wait like they're having to do. And so what he does is he says, well, let's do something, men. He says, let's aim the camp. There was a cathedral in the city that you could see off in the distance. And on, around the cathedral were statues of saints through the ages. And he said, let's, let's aim our cannons at the saints. See if we, can, if we can take out the saints with our cannons. And so they engaged in just to pass the time shooting at this cathedral and trying to knock out these saints. We don't know how many uh, rounds they fired over the period of time of, of waiting. And we don't know how many of saints they took out. But here's what we do know. When the British, when the land uh, troops arrived to go ashore for the battle, uh, and turned to the Navy for support, there was no support available because in their boredom and firing their cannons at the statue saints, they'd used up all their ammunition so they could provide no support. And I thought, isn't that a perfect illustration sometimes of what happens when we fire back? We get impatient and we fire back. And you know what? A lot of times we fire back and use up all our ammunition firing at the saints, firing at each other. That's what's going on in the passage that we looked at. Before you start firing back, listen, wait, calm down. As I said, I, I understand that perfectly well. Uh, through the years, uh, in ministry in particular, uh, it is not unusual to get anonymous letters. I don't know, maybe you've received anonymous letters. I mean, um, as I said at the beginning, if you get a letter that's anonymous, throw it away. But I've received letters uh, over the years uh, from people who either watch us outside or even sometimes from inside that could be very harsh and very critical. And what I would do with those letters, if they were overly harsh and critical, I, I would, before I was smart enough just to say, I'm, not, I'm throwing that away. I'm not even going to deal with that. Uh, I would take, if I knew where the letter came from, and oftentimes I would, a critical letter, I would take and sit down and write a response. And I would deal with all of the, the criticisms. And I would fold up, put it in an envelope, address it and everything. These are ones that I knew, people that did sign their letters. And then let me tell you what I did with those letters. Before I mailed them, I put them on my desk, and I began to pray. I'd pray over them, and I would wait and say, Jesus, if I need to send this, you give me liberty to do so. And I would pray, and I'd wait. And eventually, I want to tell you what, you know what happened to 90% of those letters over the years? I threw them away. And they were great letters too, man. I had put them in their place. I had, I had shown them how in error they were in everything that they wrote, and so I just took them apart. But Jesus wouldn't let me send them. The 10% that I had, have sent through the years typically were letters that needed to be sent, and they, they had grace and love mixed in them. Be careful about a hasty response. And that leads me to number four. Don't respond in haste. James, in chapter 1, verse 19, says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Do you get that? Quick to hear, listen more than you speak. Slow to speak and slow to anger. I read about two taxidermists. They came across a storefront window, and there was an owl in front of them. And they stood there looking at the owl, and they, because they were taxidermists, they immediately began to criticize the way that it had been mounted. They looked further and they said, look, the eyes are not natural. Its wings were not in proportion with its head. They said its feathers were not neatly arranged and its feet could be improved. They're taxidermists. They know these things. 
And about the time they'd finished with their criticism, that old mounted owl spread its wings out and turned its head and hooted. They looked at each other and said, whoops. A little premature, wouldn't you say, on their, if I, look, don't respond in haste. Be careful. Don't, don't act quickly. And that's where waiting and praying and calming down come in. Have you ever responded quickly to your critic? I have. And, and you've used words that you wish you could take back. Anybody ever done that? You said, I said something. I wish I could take that back. I wish I could undo that, and maybe you had to go back and apologize. I've had to do that through the years. Again, mileage has helped me. I think I'm better at it than I used to be. I think I've learned the lessons that I'm talking about here, but that doesn't mean I have perfected the art. And so we have to remind ourselves, you know, uh, calm down, pray, wait. James tells us to do just that. He says, be quick to listen. What's really being said? Is there anything I need to hear here? Be slow to speak before I shoot my mouth off and be slow to anger. You see, a hasty response is often the result of just merely defending ourselves or firing an arrow back at the critic. You, you take a shot at me, I'm taking a shot at you. James also moves later in his book into chapter 3 and he starts talking about the tongue. You know, tongue will get us in trouble, right? Your tongue... Whose tongue has ever got them in trouble? Raise your hands. Yeah, that looks like about 100%. And uh, the others that didn't raise your hand, you're lying. <laughs> your hand just got your tongue in trouble. But seriously, we've all, you know, we all know that. And you know what James says in chapter 3 of his book? He says, your tongue is small, but it stains your whole body. You can just make a fool out of your entire body, your entire life with your mouth, can't you? And you know what James said? Now, this goes back to what we talked about at first. James says, guess what? And the tongue, though a small thing, is set, uh, can set all of life on fire. And then he adds, because the tongue itself is set on fire from hell. Remember the source? Criticism? Look, just like you don't want to be criticized, don't you become a critic. Don't you become the very thing that you hate when it comes in our life? Have you ever noticed something about us? We're masters at detecting where other people are blowing it and not seeing it in ourselves. Don't become what you don't want to receive. So, victory over criticism often requires simply patience, praying, and waiting. And then last, and this is my favorite of all, so I saved it for the very end. The last thing, the last, how do you respond? The last thing, don't respond at all. This is my favorite. Don't respond at all. Do you know most of the time, just don't even fool with it. Don't even respond. You say, is that biblical? Well, look what Proverbs 26, 4 says. Remember I told you this scripture earlier, answer not a fool according to his folly. Look at this, lest you be like him yourself. Augustine, the great church father, wrote City of God. Augustine said this, Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating myself. Isn't that good? You want me to say it again? Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to get it straight. I'm, you're, I'm going to make you understand the truth about me and that sort of stuff. Listen, the simple response sometimes is just no response. And one of my favorite writers, R.T. Kendall, who for 25 years pastored Westminster Chapel in London, a great historic church, he followed a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of the most gifted expositors and Bible teachers in at least modern history in the last couple of centuries. He was a legend there, and he was there for years and years and years. And R.T. Kendall followed him. He was a, he, now think about this. He was a, a doctor in ministry. He had graduated. He grew up in Kentucky. You got this Kentucky preacher who becomes the pastor of this well-established kind of highbrow Westminster Chapel in London. 
uh, that had been led by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Do you know, for 25 years, he pastored there, and he was under constant attack and assault, being compared to Martin Lloyd-Jones. You're not Lloyd-Jones, and, and Lloyd-Jones wouldn't do what you do. And, all, and he was just, man, they just hammered uh, R.T. Kendall. I don't know, I don't know how he, he survived, but he's a prolific writer and one of my favorite authors. And one of the things he said he took as his approach uh, I guess early in his ministry was, when I'm attacked, when I'm criticized, I will not respond at all. I'll let God um, be my defense. Now, that's pretty good. I'm not saying there's never a time to respond, but that's what he adopted, and it's pretty good, and it's pretty biblical. Romans 12, Paul said this, Beloved, that's us, never avenge yourself. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's a special set of circumstances, but you get what he's saying? He's saying, don't engage in what you receive. Never avenge yourself, but leave it up to God. And uh, again, that's a special set of uh, circumstances, but it has some broad application for us. And the fact is, sometimes the best thing you can do is nothing at all. Let God handle it. Now, I can tell you this. I'm an expert at a lot of these things I'm talking about, but I've also learned that's true. There have been many times through the years when my flesh became angry and I wanted to retaliate and I wanted to respond And I've had God whisper to me in my time. I'm thinking I don't have time to tell you a couple of stories, but I'm thinking about a couple of stories right now. I've had times where I I thought, I need to respond to this. And God told me, he said, Ray, if you'll keep your mouth shut, I'll take care of this. And you know what, class? Listen to this. He did. Isn't that something how God does that? If we will listen to him. But I will tell you, I've had to almost staple my mouth together. When you make your living with your mouth, I've had to almost staple my mouth together sometimes. Have you ever been there? Sometimes the best thing you can do is just do nothing at all. George Whitfield was a great evangelist of the Great Awakening, uh, Awakening era in the 18th century. And um, he learned that it was more important to please God than to please men. Um, because he knew that what he was doing was honoring a God, and it kept him as a result, because he knew that, I'm trying to uh, honor God, it kept him from discouragement, and it kept him from having to respond to all the false accusations that were made about him from his critics. At one point in his ministry, Whitfield received a vicious letter accusing him of wrongdoing. And his reply was, and I mentioned something similar to this earlier, his reply was brief and courteous. I thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love, in Christ, George Whitfield. That was his response. Isn't that a great response? He didn't try to defend himself. He was much more concerned about making sure he was pleasing God. And therein, listen, therein lies the ultimate secret to victoriously overcoming criticism. Focus on pleasing God. Now, all the other things are helpful. The things I said, I hope those five things will be helpful to you. But listen, the bottom line is focus on pleasing God. That's where Jesus was. He could have said, I'm not going to take this stuff. But his goal was to complete the purpose and the mission of God. Focus on that mission that God has for you. You'll never go wrong in your response if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus. Now, Now listen, I didn't just say that if you keep your eyes on Jesus, you'll never have critics. In fact, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, I want to tell you in the world you live in, you may have more critics. And I didn't just say that criticism will not hurt you if you keep your eyes on Jesus. Criticism hurts. But what I will say is that if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus, then Jesus will be your defender. And if God is with us. Y'all know the rest of that verse? Who can be against us? Who do you think can defend you better, God or you? I mean, to ask the question is to answer it, right? Sometimes the best defense that you can offer the critic 
is simply no defense and no response at all. And to trust, to trust it to Jesus. Jesus can handle it. He can handle your reputation. He can handle the end result. So trust him. He's an expert. <clears throat> Years ago, before I ever came to Dothan, when I was pastoring, I had a sweet couple. They really were a sweet couple. They loved Allison and I. Um, but they were what I termed criticism magnets. Y'all know what a criticism magnet is? It's someone who criticism always seems to attach to them. They're not the critic. They're the messenger. I need to tell you about some concerns that people have. I need to t- they're a criticism magnet. So if there's criticism out there, stink, stink, they attract. They're never the critic. They're just the delivery system. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Criticism magnets. And this couple was that. They were sweet. Now, I, they really did love us. And um, they're in heaven. I, I, I want to tell you, they loved us. They've even, since I pastored here, passing through years ago, they've been here in our worship. So I had that kind of relationship. But they were, you know. And so I won't ever forget this one particular incident. They came. They made an appointment. They came to see me. They sat in my study with me. And they said, Pastor, we need, we need to tell you that... Uh, there are a lot of people who are concerned about a direction that you're leading us in. Now, listen, the church had died. When I arrived, it was 75 people and dying. God did something miraculous. It wasn't me. But in three years, we went from 75 to over 1,100. And we were at the stage they came to see me. We were at about 700. We were going about 700, and, and they were sweet people. They were, honestly, they were a whole lot like Ridgecrest, except for the unsweet people. Um, they came to see me. They said, and I said, Pastor, we're concerned. There are people that are, that are really upset about a direction you're leading us in. And I said, well, tell me what it is. And they told me. I said, hmm. I said, how many people would that be? They said, well, it's a lot. I said, well, how many? I said, would it be 100 people? And they went, oh, no, no, not 100. I said, well, a lot. 75? They said, oh, no, 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 it's not 75. I said, 50. I started just doing the math, just coming down, trying to figure out, you know, this could be serious. A coup. I, I said, 50? They said, oh, no, not that many. I said, 25? They said, no, not that many. <laughs> I kept working down the list. I said, finally, I got to 10. I said, 10? Promise this or two, they went, no, <laughs> not 10. I said five, and they went, no. <laughs> they said, actually, there are only four, and we're two of them. And the other two weren't concerned until we told them about it. <laughs> They're our friends. And they said, you know, the more we think about it, it really doesn't bother us. <laughs> Pastor, we're sorry we wasted your time. <laughs> and they left. I promise that happened. Well, the Lord taught me something there that I want to share with you, and this is what it is. The fact is, much of the criticism that comes to you is insignificant. Don't let the devil destroy you with it. I don't know how they figure these things out, but they say that for every criticism you receive, you need 20 affirmations to undo it. That sounds like hell, doesn't it? I mean, that just sounds like what the devil would do is to try to, to let you take one criticism and let it ruin your life. Don't you give him that satisfaction. Most of the criticism that come your way is going to be insignificant. If there's something to learn, learn it. But think through. If you'll get that, then it'll help you make application before you do something hasty, before you do something in anger. It'll help you respond. And think about this. When you respond in love, you're not affirming what they said. You're actually saying, look, I may be worse than you think I am. 
Uh, so, in, in fact, the truth is, I probably am. You know what you do? You take their ability to control you away. Your response, take, look, and no response. You say, well, that feels, no. When you don't respond, guess what you're saying? You're not going to control me with your criticism. I'm not even going to respond to it. Now, if it's legit, and by the way, sometimes it is legitimate to us, isn't it? Then you say, God, even if it's from somebody that doesn't like you, say, God, I do need to give attention to that. But just don't let criticism destroy you because the devil divides your soul with it. All right, we got to go. But let me just tell you the last thing. The most important statement in my entire... I'm about to give the most important statement to you in my entire message. Are you all ready for it? I mean this. It's the most important statement. Here it is. If you haven't trusted Jesus with your soul, you will not be able to trust him when you're criticized. If you have not trusted Jesus with your soul... You will not be able to trust him when you're criticized. Because you can't handle criticism without supernatural help. If you've never trusted Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. And I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes. No one's looking about. Bradley's going to come and going to share with us a little bit in just a moment. I'll step down front and We'll have our invitation, but right now, those of you who are watching us by live stream, I want you to answer this question. Have I trusted my soul to Jesus? Not to religion, but to Jesus. And if you cannot say honestly in your heart, I've really trusted Jesus with my soul, I want you to do that today. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's how you do that. Right now, in your heart, offer up with sincerity a prayer to him that goes something like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need your help. I invite you to come into my life. I give you my soul, my eternal soul. I give that to you. Come into my soul. Come into my life and be my Savior. I don't want to be religious. I want to have this relationship. I want you to be able to reform me after the image that you created me to be. Some of you in this place today, you may be saying, you know what? I have let the devil use criticism to just about control and ruin me. It's destroying me. Would you right now tell Jesus, say, Jesus, I give that to you. I can't handle that. And God, I want instead the peace that comes from you, the peace that passes all understanding. I want to pursue you. I want to keep my eyes on you. I want to focus on you instead of on the criticisms. Lord, help me learn what I need to learn. Help me respond in love when I need to respond. But Lord, help me put my eyes upon you and pleasing you and leaving behind the critics and the criticism. Now, Lord Jesus, would you hear these prayers? I know you do, and I thank you. Maybe that's what I should really say, Lord. I thank you for hearing these prayers. And Father, would you move in our hearts in these moments of invitation before we're gone? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me for our time of invitation? I'm going to be down here at the front. Chuck's going to be here. Bob's going to be over here on this side. Bob and Chase will be over here. And maybe there's a decision for you to make. Now, if you're watching by live stream, you know, you've heard already about the number you can text to. And we'd love to hear from you about your decision. You can do that from this uh, audience here. You can just text us a a pastor or join if you want to join our church or uh, whatever the case may be, 334-384-8080. I think it's posted around in various places. You can fill out the slip if you want to and tear it off. And Today I trusted Christ. I gave my soul to Him. You can drop it in a basket. Uh, that's a, you can join us. You can do that, you know. Or better yet, you can come at this invitation time. You can come down here and you can say, today, 
I've received Christ as my Savior. Or today, Pastor, I already know Christ. I want Ridgecrest to be my church home, and I want to join Ridgecrest. People have already done it today in our earlier service. And, or maybe you just want to come and pray around this altar. It's not for show. It's to come and bend a knee before God. Maybe you want to come and pray. Say, God, here's a decision I've got to make. Or, God, I'm praying for somebody. Or, God, here's what I desire to be. Just talk to him. That's what it's for. There is something powerful about bending our knees before God. So I invite you to do that. Whatever the decision may be, as Bradley leads us, you slip out. Balcony, ground floor, you come on right now. Come on, move. Let's move.